start a new series through the book of 1 Thessalonians, which is quite a short book and it won't be a long series and leading up to Christmas. So the first one, yeah, going back. So in a nutshell, this message today from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 is about a church of great influence. And this is the thing that really stands out about Thessalonians, the, the well, Thessalonica and the church there, is that it left such a great impression on the Apostle Paul that he really commends them. He was so happy about what God was doing there and the way their faith was showing. It, 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 it's a model church. It, it's something for us today to look to and say, well, that's what we want to be here in Wingham. I really think that. So last week when we talked about Romans chapter 8, very personal, a lot of really good stuff there, but this is about the church, something bigger. I think it's a great... If you want to say, well, what's the vision of our church? This would be a great passage to go to. If we could be like them, we'd be doing really well. Um, we'll go to the outline in a minute, but just leave that one up for now. Paul wrote this letter in the spring of AD 50, and it's regarded as Paul's earliest letter. One of the first ones, or perhaps the first one he wrote. It's written from Corinth with Silas and Timothy. He's writing it because Timothy has come back to Corinth where Paul is and he's given this report and he's so encouraged by what Timothy says about the church in Thessalonica that he writes this great letter back to them straight away. So Paul is in uh, Corinth because on his second missionary journey he went back to visit the churches they'd first established in say Turkey and then while he was on that journey, he received a vision of a Macedonian man, say a Greek man. And in, back in those days, apparently, um, Macedonian men wear big, wide-brimmed hats. So you can imagine this picture of the big, wide-brimmed hat guy going, come over here, Paul. Come over from Turkey to Greece, which is basically the border of Europe, where Europe starts. So this began the great European mission of Paul. And he goes to Philippi, where he gets thrown in jail, you know, gets beaten, all that. Then next he goes to Thessalonica. And then he goes on to Berea and Athens and ends up in Corinth. So he's riding from Corinth back to the church. Thessalonica was a prosperous and busy city, well located on a major Roman road and boasting a very safe harbour. It was surrounded by fertile soil and abundant rain and rivers. The surrounding hills had plenty of trees for timber construction and the greater region was very rich with gold, silver, copper, iron and lead. The Roman road built about maybe 150 years earlier was named the Ignatian Way or the Via Ignatia. So there are two great big Roman roads. The Arpian Way went across Rome, across Italy, and then went by boat across the sea and you started in Greece, so heading from east to west, and then you got onto this Ignatian Way that went right across from one side of Greece all the way to the other to Byzantium, so to the, where, where Greece and Turkey meet. So it's a really long way, especially back in those days, and this beautiful road was built. And when Rome, Romans built roads, they built them as military roads, so they're big cobblestones, and that's what it looked like. See that picture? Back in those days, 
they're not built for like double double lane highways. They're built for fast uh, fast movement of soldiers and carts between one city and the other. And believe it or not, you know, fast meant it took them like three weeks for a, a messenger from Rome to get to all the way to Byzantium, like two or three weeks. That was fast. Like it'd take us, you know, what, half a day. But two or three weeks was fast back in those days because they'd go by horse and cart. And if they had a road like this, it meant they didn't have to be stopped all the time by, you know, uh, dirt tracks and furrows and, you know, broken down things, which could cost, which could take five or six weeks to go across Italy and then across Greece and over mountains. But if you had a road like this, nothing's stopping you. Bang. So this was a big deal. Rome was good at building roads. It was a very busy uh, road filled with merchants and travellers and was often dangerous because not only did it, was it good for soldiers and good people to go along, it was good for bad people to go along too. You beauty, like bushrangers. Here's a place where I can, you know, hold some people up. So it was an ancient highway filled with pedestrians, horses, mules and carts. As Paul and his companions travelled from Philippi to Thessalonica, they found themselves alongside Roman soldiers along the road, officials, people involved in trade, religious heralds speaking their philosophy, pilgrims, and some going to games and festivals, dressed up in all sorts of costumes. You can imagine it. Busy, like bumping shoulder, uh, shoulders and, oh, get off the highway so I can get through, you know. It was a busy road. One ancient writer called Cicero complained about the difficulty travelling along the Ignatian Way because of the great volume of traffic. It was a bit like when we came back from uh, Sydney the other day, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Hexham Bridge, just absolutely chock-a-block. You know what that's like? I couldn't believe it. But this was shoulder-to-shoulder busyness. Paul and his companions travelling along there. It was the seat of the Roman government in Macedonia. So I say Macedonia, just think modern Greece. And the presence of a synagogue offered an obvious place to begin his gospel preaching work. And we see that in Acts chapter 17. It's good to read Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 10. Do you want to read that to sort of get your head in this? Let's do that. I think it's good. Set the scene, I suppose, for what Paul first, what happened when they first went there. So when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, the Messiah, he said. And some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials shouting, 
These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus, whom they heard, when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So that's how the church in Thessalonica started. The two letters, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, have some great teaching, but the big emphasis in both letters or epistles is on the second coming of Christ. There's a lot of really good teaching, but that's really what stands out. And the events surrounding Jesus' second coming. So we'll get into that later. On the subject of end-time teaching, there is usually quite a variety of ideas, opinions, perspectives in a church on second coming. I think every Christian gets that Jesus is coming back, but you know, is it going to be before the thousand-year reign? Is it going to be after the thousand-year reign? Or is the thousand-year reign just a bit of a symbol of you know, the current church age? They're the three different perspectives. So it's all about the idea of the millennium. That, that seems to be the differences. And whether Jesus will take the rapture, whether it will be before um, the great persecution or after it. They're the sort of issues where Christians have different opinions. So we'll look at that as we get into it. But what I have found most helpful when thinking about end times teaching, and this is something you really should consider, I think it makes a lot of sense, when you're trying to understand the end times and what's going to happen, start with the plain teaching passages of scripture first. Start with what's easy to understand that's not symbolic. In other words, start with the epistles. And the best epistle to start with is this, this one, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, because it's the plainest teaching. There's no symbolic language which you have to think, well, we'll have to try and figure out what's he getting at. There's no what's he getting at sort of ideas here. It's all very plain and easy to understand. Doesn't mean it's you know normal like we see it every day. No, it's going to be huge and amazing, but it's clear. So start with the epistles, then go to the gospels where Jesus talked about his return. Go there next, and you'll see where the epistles fit in with what Jesus has already said. Then after you've got that down pat, then go to the more difficult Old Testament prophecies, looking forward and the book of Revelation, which we know Revelation's filled with symbols. Okay? So what I find where people sort of get you know, mixed up, I suppose, is where they start with Old Testament prophecy first and book of Revelation. They get set on what that they think that means. Then they come to Thessalonians and they go, oh, well, that doesn't fit with what I think Revelation says. So unfortunately, they get it around the wrong way. Okay, does that make sense? I mean, it just makes sense, doesn't it, to start with things that are easy under to understand first, then go to the things that are difficult to understand. Okay, so that's like, in a nutshell, how you interpret, or you should interpret, old, uh, end times teaching. And that, that way it all pans out pretty easy. Okay? 
That, that's, to me, the easiest way to figure things out. Okay, we'll get onto that later. Um, and I can send you a, a, a good article on um, principles of biblical interpretation, if you like. I've got a good one that I can just email to you if you're interested. All right, let's look at the outline of this passage that we're going to go through. It's a bit blurry, isn't it? So there's just three sections. First of all, it describes their overall life in Christ. There's a quick description of that, almost in poetry. You know, it's, it's really simple. It's a good sort of rule of thumb of what to aim at as a church. And then he gives, goes into their reception of the gospel, how they first receive the gospel, and then he finishes with their influence, how everyone is talking about them. Okay? Gee, that's blurry. Oh, okay. There it's better than there. Yeah, okay. There you go. That's, that's much better. That's an outline of the passage. So let's start. The overall description of the church's life in Christ. We get that from verse 2 and 3. He says, We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. So he's thinking about the church and this is what stands out in his head. We continually remember before our God and Father these three things. Your work produced by faith, your labour, prompted by love, and your endurance, inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Three things, each a little bit different, but really, really easy to get. If I am to aim at something, if we want our church to look like something, if me as a person want a, a quick understanding of what God wants from me, that's it. It's very clear. They are the three things that stood out when he thought about the church. Their work, produced by faith, their labour, prompted by love, their endurance, inspired by hope. These things made an impression on Paul. They stuck in his head. It's not just the things themselves, but the second half of each of those three little lines includes their motivation for their activities. He just doesn't say, oh, what stands out is your work, your labour, your endurance. That would have been fine. But he says your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope. So Paul's not just interested in what they produce, but he's also interested in the reasons in their heart. What's going on inside the person when they do these things? That's really important to God as well. So Christian life is not just about what we do on the outward. It's about what our heart is like as well. And Jesus made this very, very clear. When he, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, brilliant teaching, absolutely inspired, like this is God speaking to us, where Jesus talks the Sermon on the Mount. And what stands out there is, is he really makes it clear God's not just interested in what you do on the outside. It's really about what's going on inside. Think about when he said, you know, uh, and don't be like the hypocrite who loves to stand praying in the synagogue and on the street corner to be seen by men. Don't be like him when you pray. No, you go into your room and close the door so that no one can see you. And pray to your father who is unseen. Then he who sees what's done in secret will reward you. And he goes on to talk about the way you give, don't do it to be seen by other people when you do good works. It's it really all about 
challenging that concept that the Pharisees had, as long as everyone sees me, that's what's important. As long as everyone regards me as being holy, that's what I'm really interested in. But Jesus really smashed that and said, no. Yeah, it's good what you do, but God's also in, in, it's what your heart is like. And really, that's the basis of faith. No one can see a person's faith, their trust in Jesus. Only God knows if you actually trust Jesus. Only God really knows that. Faith is produ produces work, so we see it. But only God knows whether you really know him. Because Jesus said, there'll be some who'll say, Lord, Lord, on the day of judgment. He'll say, what are you talking about? I don't even know you. So they might have been going around saying, Lord, Lord, to everyone. Lord, Lord. But Jesus didn't even know them because their heart wasn't right with him. So this is what Paul's saying here, their work produced by faith, their labour prompted by love, their endurance inspired by hope is right in line with Jesus and what God, how God sees faith. He's interested in our motivations as well. These three virtues, faith, love and hope, come up really often in the New Testament. For instance, the one we're probably most familiar with is 1 Corinthians 13, you know, the great love chapter where Paul talks about what love is like. And he finishes with, and now these three remain, faith, hope and love, and the greatest of these is love, right? Faith, hope and love, these three things that he's talking about here. So, and there's many other scriptures where he combines those three things, faith, hope and love together. In other words, that is like Christian life in a nutshell. So they're big, they're big. So, you know, work produced by faith. That's the first one he talks about. Work refers here to the end product of their good actions. It's not described for us exactly what the works are, but it's probably, when you read through the letter, it's the fact that they shared the gospel with other people and they loved each other. That's really Christian work in a nutshell. <laughs> Doesn't get much simpler than that. They cared for each other's needs in practical ways. So this work produced by faith, the work is all their, the end result of their actions. And he says their work, which comes from their faith in Christ. So they've turned from idols and other religions to follow Jesus. They trusted in Jesus for their salvation and this faith in Jesus produced work, all the good things that they were doing. They can look back and say, well, once I followed idols and I followed idols and I used to walk past that beggar on the streets because I, I, you know, the idol didn't really talk to me much. I just talked to him and you know, gave him stuff and the idol was up there on a pole, and that was all good. But when I followed Jesus and turned from that idol, I go past that beggar in the street, and I have faith in Jesus, and that faith now moves me to do something for that beggar on the street, or the, the widow who's lonely at home in the church, and I, I have to go and visit her. So my faith in Jesus now pushes me to do these things. That's the work produced by faith. Then he goes, the labour prompted by love. So labour refers to the effort or the struggle or the personal cost associated with 
the good work. So now he's emphasising something that's going on inside the person, not just the end result, but what's going on inside of them. It's, it's the hard effort. And so the difference between the work produced by faith and the labour prompted by love, you know, work and labour sound like the same thing, don't they? Work, labour, sound like the same thing. But the difference here is, is like this. I guess the work is the baby that comes out at the end of the labour. You've done a good work, our daughter Nicole. You've done a good work. Look at our grandson you've produced. That's a good work. Oh, Dad, but I had to go through a lot of pain and suffering to get that good work. And that pain and suffering is called (laughs) labour. That's easy, isn't it? The labour is what he's talking about here. So he's interested in the things they're doing, but it's the labour. He's really thanking God for the labour that they put into, prompted by love. So, you know, Nicole, why did you go through all that labour? Because I, 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 I wanted a baby and I love him. It's prompted by love, isn't it? You, know? you wouldn't do it if there wasn't some, something to love at the end. And that's the way Paul sees the church. And he's commending them for it. It stands out, this labour that they do. So Paul remembered the church's labour, their effort at great cost to do the good. The labour came from love that was motivated. That was their motivation. Love prompts people to act. Love in us is like, I guess, an elbow in the ribs from your partner. Does your partner ever do that? They ever tap your foot, kick your leg when they want you to notice something? Well, that's love. Love is like that inside of us. It's like a do something. It's like a little nudge. Love inside of us. Love prompts us to do good. You've been loved by Jesus and by God. He's poured out his love. He gave his life for us on the cross. How can you not love others since you've been loved by God? That's how it works. And then the third thing that really stands out about this church is the way they kept going. The endurance inspired by hope. So endurance refers to their not giving up on serving Christ and his people. Not going back to their old ways. This pushing through hard times has been inspired by their hope. Hope in the resurrection and the second coming of Christ. They look forward to this prize and they don't want to forego their reward. So this is a third big thing in a nutshell that stands out about this church. that They're people of endurance. They don't give up. And it's inspired. What's in their heart when they say, I'm not going to give up? What's in their heart? They think about Jesus coming back. And the reward. And I think, I don't want to miss out on that. I'm going to keep going. What a great little description of Christian life in a nutshell. A wonderful, easy to remember summary of what we're all about. Three actions, three motivations. And they were obvious to Paul as he thought about that church. They were, and it tells me that they were most likely regularly expressing those things those three things, those things they were doing and their reasons for it in conversation. Like uh, as Paul interacted with them and lived with them, talked with them, they were probably regularly talking like that. Like this. Imagine. 
Apostle Paul on a Sunday at a church service, and he says afterwards to Eurodia, okay, a lady. He says, it's really good that you visited the widow Nympha this week. And says Paul on a Sunday to Eurodia, right? I wrote this. She says, how could I not, since Jesus has turned my life around to do good things for others? Paul then says, oh yeah, but you travelled all the way across town and I know that you don't have a lot of money to spare. Eurodia says, yes, it was hard work, labour, but Jesus' love compelled me to do it. I could not sit back and hold on to such love and not give it to others. It would not be right. No matter how much it cost me to love her, I had to do it. Yes, indeed, says Paul, oh, but you have been living this way for a while now and faced much persecution from neighbours. Others have given up on their faith. I could never go back, says Eurodia. That day when Jesus returns will be the greatest day of all. He will shower us with wonderful eternal rewards. That keeps me going, Paul. And Paul says to her, You inspire me, Eurodia. As I look at the way you love others, the way your life is turned from serving idols to now serving God, how you never give up even though people are throwing rocks at you in the street. You just don't give up. Little Eurodia in the church who maybe no one cares too much about, she serves God behind the scenes all week. And Paul says, you inspire me. I can imagine him saying that. Because he's thinking back about this church and he's so excited about his memory of it that he can't stop thinking about it. And now he moves on to... How are we going? Probably nearly there. These two last ones are quick. How the church received the gospel. He, he thinks about that and it stands out in his head. He says, chosen by God because the gospel came to you. He proves that God had chosen them because of the fact that the gospel in someone actually proclaiming it eventually came to them. In other words, God chose them and then one day someone came and preached the gospel and then the chosen heard the message and responded to it and were saved. I know God's chosen you because someone came and preached the gospel to you and you believed. It's a bit like the way Spurgeon used to explain this. He used to say, there's a big sign on the outside of a building. It says, believe in Jesus, all are welcome. But when you go inside the building, you look back at the other side of the sign and it says, you were chosen. <laughs> the gospel didn't just come to them with words, he says in verse 5, but with power the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. What does that mean? Well, the gospel message, the, the, the explanation of Jesus' life, death and resurrection, and what it means, came to them through Paul and Silas. They preached that message in the synagogue. But it came with something else as well. He says it didn't just come with words. 
It has to come with words, but there was something extra. It's the same language in 1, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4. He says, the message of the, Jesus Christ has power. It has power for miracles, power for wonderful signs from God, and best of all, it has power to change lives, hearts and minds. Many times in the book of Acts, miracles accompanied the preaching of the gospel, especially in the early um, first missionary journey where Paul preached. It, God then confirmed the message of the gospel with miracles. People were healed by God's power. And that was the message to say to them, wow, God is really speaking through these apostles. Because look, now this blind man can see. So God has done something, a work of God, which confirms the word of God. So we don't know if that happened here in Thessalonica. It's not mentioned in Acts that miracles did accompany their work, but it doesn't mean it didn't happen. It could have. So when it says the gospel, not just with words, but with power, the Holy Spirit and deep conviction, he could be meaning that there were miracles powerful demonstrations or it could just mean that there was great a great turning from um, idols turning to Jesus in other words a powerful change of life came about we don't know but it could mean both it's fine what he's meaning is it wasn't just the preaching of the words but there was something powerful also going on In explaining the gospel, we must also be excited about the change in our lives. That's powerful because he says here it came also with deep conviction. Meaning the, the way they were expressing it. Paul and the others, when they taught about Jesus, it wasn't just, oh, Jesus came, he died on the cross and he rose from the dead. You know, you should believe in him. You know, because that's what it says here. That's what I learned at the last course. That's, that's what we have to do. Okay? Good. Hope everyone now believes. Revival. It's great, isn't it? <laughs> you know? There's not much deep conviction in that, is there? So, you know, when we explain the gospel to others, get excited about it. It's good news. It's the greatest news. And match it with, and God turned me around. Don't have to go into great explanation about you know every drug you've ever taken, but just I used to worship idols or I used to follow my own way, and now I follow Jesus, and it's changed my life for the better. Get excited about it, explain it with deep conviction. So that's what's happened here, and then they also not just received the gospel with power attached to it that changed their life, but they then became imitators of Paul and Jesus. And that is the final proof, if you like, of leadership. Many people think they're leaders. But if no one's following you, you're not a leader. But people imitated Paul and Jesus because they're the ultimate leaders. And they became role models I have you know, two role models that stick out in my mind that I try and model myself on. Apart from Jesus, yes, he's the greatest one. 
But when it comes to flesh and bones here and blood on earth, there's a preacher in Wodonga that whilst I was an army chaplain, we went to their church for a while in Wodonga and he was an excellent preacher. Went through the passage, expounded the scriptures, explained the things, used good illustrations, was passionate. He was like, it was great. And I haven't always found that when I've visited churches, but he was a role model for me. And I always think, how would Stuart do that? He's my role model. It was enough to leave a great impression on me and you know, um, encourage me to keep going with a style that I always did anyway. But at least now I think, I think what would, how would Stuart do this? And the second role model I have, flesh, blood, bones, is this old retired pastor who's turned 80 recently from Batemans Bay. He wasn't in charge of the church, but he, he sort of was because everyone loved him so much. And, you know, he was just so gentle and loving that he was so impacting just because he was so gentle and, and you know, out there. He would always follow you up, always, you know, how, how was it last weekend? You know, what are you up to now? He would, can we have a coffee? You know, and, but so loving and gentle and laid back and just peaceful man. And I look at him and I think, you're what I want to be. I'm not quite there, but I'd love to be a loving, gentle pastor. That when our time's done here, you know, in 50 years' time, that people will look back and go, he, he, he loved us. Because that impacts people. And if you can combine that with, you know, he taught the scriptures faithfully, that's a pretty good combo. Those two guys are my role models, like the Thessalonians imitated Paul. So, you know, it's good to have role models in your life, someone that's impacted you in a godly way that you look, well, I just want to be a bit like them. And they receive the gospel with joy. And then finally, this little church at Thessalonica was a great influence to those around them. We see that in the last three verses from verse 8 to 10. Have a look at that. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for Jesus' return. So Paul's sort of saying, well, I don't need to put up a big sign about you. I don't need, need to start a Facebook account. I don't need to engage in social media to let everyone know about you because everyone's talking about you. You know, people are just talking about, they can't, they, something amazing has happened in Thessalonica. God has done such a work. People are just talking about you. That's the way to advertise, isn't it? Isn't it, really? That's the way to get your message out, word of mouth. Yep, we have Facebook. Yes, we do all those other things. You know, good to have an online presence. All good. But there's nothing better than a good report. Don't you think? It, it made an impact on people because their church focused on those first three things. Faith, hope and love. Their work, their labour and their perseverance motivated by faith, hope and love. It, 
the basics. They did the basics so well that, that people were talking about them. They talked about how they turned from God, turned from idols to follow God and serve Jesus. That's really what Christian conversion is all about. It's about turning from our old life, which the Bible says is sinful, disobeying God. They turned from disobeying God and they turned to follow Jesus. That's conversion, repentance and faith. They did that and people were amazed at how they had changed their life. What's all that? They realised they were living an empty life and they turned to Jesus for salvation. That's really what it's all about. And they looked forward to Jesus' return, which we'll go into in future messages. So, in conclusion, picture this in your head. A church filled with people who have been drastically turned around, that they now love each other so powerfully, they work hard in the community, and they persevere through suffering. You can turn that off if you like. Whatever. That nothing will stop them. And the church is so used by God that everyone out there is saying, what's going on there? I want to be a part of that. What a church. You know, if you think about what we're aiming at, that's what we're aiming at at Wingham. That inspires me. Their faith, love and hope and their testimony about the good news and how it's changed their life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you've turned us from selfishness to following you. We still struggle with that, but you've put us on the right path and you're working in our hearts. Lord, we just ask that you... Help us to be a very clear church, a clear and focused church on what you require from us. And this is a great role model. Help us to be like the people there who served you in the Thessalonian church. People filled with faith, love and hope. Lord, that's what we're aiming at. May our testimony and may our influence in this church reach out to others as we just serve you powerfully in this church. Amen.